Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly make their plan, set their tables, and throw competing banquets. Both invite humanity to come and dine, but the final courses couldn't be any more different. All this and more as we continue our year with Solomon. I'm Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What Podcast. So if you remember, we're, we're working our way through Proverbs with our year with Solomon, and um, we're, we are almost done with the first collection of writings from Solomon in the book of Proverbs. There are um, three different sections that um, he writes. There are collections of different writings that he's done, and, and these, are, uh, these are observations about the world. One of the things that I, I learned this week um, from Andrew Gabbard, actually, was that um, so in, when, when we think about what, how God has presented himself to humanity, we have two different categories of that revelation. We have general revelation, which is like, I can see the magnificence of creation. I can see the warmth of relationships between a father and a mother and their children. I can see these, this natural expression of who God is based in just the created world. Okay, so that's general revelation. Special revelation is when God actually speaks through a human being. So what we have in the Bible is recorded special revelation. So the book of Proverbs, if you think about general revelation, this, this idea that God's nature and who he is is expressed in creation, what we observe in the world, Proverbs is a commentary on general revelation. So these are observations about how God has made things, right? These are, we have natural laws like the law of gravity, right? We have physical laws and physics, right? There are, there are spiritual laws, there are relational laws that apply, and these are observations about those things, okay? So as we're looking at, at these scriptures, remember that we are, we're reading observations about how the world works. And so one of the things about Solomon, it's kind of ironic actually, because um, the book of Proverbs and a lot of Solomon's writings are written about the, the integrity within the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. And so if you consider how he ended his life with hundreds of concubines and hundreds of, of wives, um, we find a, at the end of Solomon's life, he has tried everything pleasurable under the sun. He has made money. He has spent money. He has had women. He has had all these things. And yet we find him at the sunset of his life saying that all is vanity. Like, I, this is just a waste. The one thing that, that a man needs is he needs God. That's it. And so Solomon has this, um, this perpetual commentary about life. And what we're going to look at this morning is chapter 7. And chapter 7 is lesson number 10 in the first collection of, of Proverbs. And we're going to look at um, the element of, of the world where um, there are people who define themselves by pleasure. That's what they want. They don't care about anything else. They want to be able to have a good time, right? And so what we're going to see this morning in Proverbs chapter 7 is specifically in regard to a woman. The Solomon describes a woman who is going to try to tempt a young man, an ignorant young man, a man that has on purpose turned his, his mind and his focus away from godly instruction. And what that does is that makes him pray to a predator. So let's start. We're just going to just dive right into the text here. So we're going to start with the first five verses. He begins by saying, My son, obey my words and treasure my commands. Keep my commands and live, and guard my instructions as you would the pupil of your eye. Tie them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. 
Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your relative. She will keep you for, from a forbidden woman, a wayward woman with her flattering talk. Okay, so he's setting things up here. So if you guys remember chapter 5, it talks about sexual integrity. We went over that a couple weeks ago, and also when we were looking at sexual integrity within our marriages. We talked about how the uh, how Solomon, or the father, is teaching the son, and he says, be sure that you protect the relationship that you have with your wife. Okay, and uh, specifically, you need to enjoy your wife for yourself and not, not share your sexual uh uh, relationships outside of your marriage. So chapter five primarily dealt with financial and social loss from adultery. What we're going to look at this morning is that chapter seven deals with the seductive tactics that come along with someone who is targeting a person who is ignorant of the truth. Okay, the main body of this ta- chapter is going to teach us through a narrative um, where the father is going to describe the dress, the motives, the, uh, the actions that the, that the adulteress takes to try to get the attention of the, of the innocent man, or the ignorant man. I guess I need to say that because that's more accurate. Okay, so the first thing, okay, so in verse 2, we see this, this encouragement again to pay attention to instruction. If you, if, you, if you write anything in your journal, you're taking notes at all, write this down. Ignorance is dangerous. Ignorance is dangerous. And what he's saying, he's, he's calling us back. You notice the same theme of, oh, dedicate yourself to God's word. Dedicate yourself to the truth. Make sure that you know the way the world works. The truth is that if we are ignorant of God's word, we are going to be prey walking around being hunted. Okay, we know that Satan, Satan hunts, right? He's, he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He says, keep my commands and live, in verse 2, and guard my instructions as you would the pupil of your eye. This is kind of a, a, a preview. He's going to talk about this a little bit more in verse 24. But in verse 2, he says, guard my instructions. He, this tells us our, how our attitude should be regarding godly wisdom. It implies a, an attentiveness, a purposefulness on making sure that it is, you're always aware of it, right? So if, somebody, if I was to come to Derek and just try to poke him in the eye, he would probably respond before I got to his eyeball, right? Because nobody likes being poked in the eye, let's be honest, Right? So what he's saying here is that you are supposed to protect the truth like you would your own eyeballs. So if somebody comes at you to try to undermine the truth, this, you automatically take a defensive stance. He's saying this is the lifeblood of, of not just surviving, but thriving in the world. So he says protect this like you would your own eyeball. Okay, and in verse 3, he draws a picture of having immediate access to godly instruction. He says, tie them to your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Okay, we've talked about this idea of a medallion, right? In the ancient world, you would carry a medallion to protect you from evil spirits, right? So this same language is used to describe what we do with God's word. But here we have a new thing that we haven't seen before. He says, tie them to your fingers. Okay, so in the, in the ancient world, what they would do, this is a metaphor for having quick access to the truth. I don't know if, we, if you were in school, if you ever had a teacher show you how to use your hand to remember things, right? Some people use their knuckles to remember how many days are in each month, right? So what he's saying is that in the ancient world, the hands are a metaphor for having something that's always seen, always visible, always in front of you. So he's saying, tie the truth to your fingertips. What he's saying is that make sure that the truth is always present in your life, always in front of you. It's, it, is, it is inescapable. So he's saying, not only is this going to be at your fingertips, we actually have this same um, phrase kind of in our culture too, where they say something is right at my fingertips, right? It's right there. I can just grab it. 
So what he's doing is he's painting a picture here of the truth being easily accessible, right? Something that's within grasp. So um, in verses four and five, he, he lays a foundation for all of lesson 10, okay? So he says, say to wisdom, you're my sister and call to understanding you're a relative. What he's saying is that truth is gonna be at part of my DNA, okay? So he says, call, call uh, wisdom your sister and understanding your relative. Verse five, she will keep you from a forbidden woman, a wayward woman with her flattering talk. Okay, so he's saying, okay, now we've, this is our preface. Now we've laid things together. So now we know that, that truth is gonna be our, our guard, our protection from this flattering woman. Okay, so now let's read about this flattering woman. Verses 6 through 23. So he says, now we're going into narrative here. He's doing, he's, this is an autobiographical um, narrative. At the window of my house, I looked through my lattice. I saw among the inexperienced, I noticed among the youths, a man lacking sense. Crossing the street near her corner, he strolled down the road to her house. At twilight in the evening, in the dark of the night, a woman came to meet him dressed like a prostitute, having a hidden agenda. She is loud and defiant. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, she lurks at every corner. She grabs him and kisses him. She brazenly says to him, I've made fellowship offerings. Today I've fulfilled my vows. So I came to meet you, to search for you, and I found you. I've spread coverings on my bed, richly covered linen from Egypt. I perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of lovemaking until morning. Let's feast on each other's love. My husband isn't home. He went on a long journey. He took a bag of silver with him and will, and will come home at, a time, at the time of the full moon. She seduces him with her persistent pleading. She lures him, lures with her flattering talk. He follows her impulsively like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer bounding toward a trap until an arrow pierces its liver, like a bird darting into a snare. He doesn't know it will cost him his life. Okay, so let's back up here. So there's three distinct parts here. The first part is verses 6 through 13. The second part is verses 14 through uh, 20. And the next one is 20 through 23. Now, the first part that we're going to look at is... So the father is going to describe what he observes, and then we're going to talk. We're going to look at how the woman talks specifically. That's the bulk of the of the expression here, and then we're going to talk about the father's observation after this whole event has taken place. Okay, this is uh, he's setting all this up. So in verse six, he describes what he sees. Okay, look at verse six. He says, "At the window of my house, I looked through my lattice." Let me pause right there. Okay, so let me paint a picture here. So in the ancient world. What you would have is you would have a, uh, every home, for the most part, would have two levels, okay? So if we're looking at it here, here's a door in the front, right? And then there's a, there's a level up top, and there are windows here. But these aren't open windows like what you would, like what we would have in our, in our homes. This is like, I don't know if you've ever seen like, um, let's see, like on the coasts, specifically in places that have a Latin influence, you'll see like a, it's a window, but it's like has cinder blocks that have shapes cut out of them right? So that's a similar thing. So you have windows here, they're like this, and they have little decorative things that are, you know, that cover them up. So basically what this does is it just allows air to get through, um, but it also provides a little bit of privacy. So in an in a ancient home, the lower level typically would be, 
you know, compacted earth. This is where you'd keep your, your livestock and have your, um, your main area where you'd gather, like your dining room and things like that. You'd prepare your meals there. And then the upper part would be your living quarters. And so what's, what's happening is that the father is saying he's, he, he's, he's upstairs in his bedchamber, right? He looks out the window. So he's a, he has an elevated viewpoint and he sees the bustle of the city. And he notices that there is a, a kid, a boy, teenager, young 20s, wandering, right? He's wandering, and he can tell this guy does not belong in the city. There is a certain awareness that comes with living in the city, right? I'll never forget when I first started to travel doing mission work, going all over the country and, and in different places around the world, I learned that there are certain crazy people that you don't talk to. They're just crazy, right? And so uh, I learned that if, you, if someone's calling to you and they want something from you, chances are they really just want your money. They don't really, they don't really care. So this, this kid is not being attentive to what his surroundings are. So he says, um, at the window of my house, I looked through my lattice and I saw among the inexperienced, I noticed among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Now this is not, this doesn't mean that he's an idiot. Now, um, he is talking about someone who's gullible. He's talking about someone who has made a conscious decision to be ignorant of the truth. Okay, so there's a difference between ignorance and stupidity, right? So stupidity means that I don't have the cognitive ability to follow what's happening, right? My brain is just doesn't comprehend this. But ignorance is the willful discarding of, of uh, intelligence. Okay, so here's, here's my point is that many times, what's painting here, many times we as human beings, we make a conscious decision to reject the truth. And it could be out of laziness, it could be out of pride, it could be, it could be out of any, any kind of thing. But what we're describing here is not, an not a guy who's just an idiot. We're talking about a guy here who's made a willful decision to not follow the truth, okay? So he is, he is blissfully choosing to be inappropriate with his, uh, with his conduct. So, the, so he is, uh, he's wandering. The language here, yeah, it, it describes someone who is, uh, he's refused to make a commitment to wisdom, okay? So, and, and notice that this is the beginning of how he is, uh, he's going to have his downfall. Okay, look at verse 8. In verse 8, he shows his primary weakness. Crossing the street near her corner, he strolled down the road to her house at twilight in the evening, in the dark of the night. So in verse 8, he says that he's just kind of meandering, right? He's not walking with a purpose. One of the things, if you, if you for instance, think about the story of King David, right? So King David walks with God his whole life. He's a man after God's own heart. And we find him in the twilight of his life. It says in the beginning of his downfall, it says, well, in, in the spring when the kings go out to war, David stayed home in the palace. There's a phrase that I learned a long time ago that is so true that an idle mind is the devil's playground. If we live unintentionally, if we don't live on purpose, we are in danger. So notice that this guy is just wandering around and he walks past this woman's house. Okay, now verse 9. At twilight in the evening, in the dark of night. Okay, every part of this verse is cloaked in darkness in some way. Okay, one of the, uh, the commentaries that I read on this said that um, the period of evening right before dusk 
is the rest of the setting for this story. Okay, the description of the evening, the the evening of the day, highlights the significance of sin hiding in darkness. So here's what's interesting. We we have a, a ministry that we do here at the church to help people work through the addiction of pornography, right? And and through the course of that that uh, that class or that that small group. We, listened, we, we learn a lot of things about how we are cognitively programmed for certain things. So even though it's not in the text, uh, we know based on science that um, what happens to the brain, for instance, here's what happens. So your brain has several different sections, but let me see if I can, I'm probably not going to draw this well, but I'm going to go ahead and try it. Okay, this is like a little bean. This is the brain, Right? So this frontal part right here, this is really not to scale or, in fact, even accurate at all. But <laughs> this is the prefrontal cortex, okay? So this is, the, this is the baseball glove front of your brain. So this is the governor of your brain. This is your, this is your center for logic, your center for decisions, your center for processing things without emotion, right? And tucked up inside of this is what's called the hippocampus. The hippocampus is... The, uh, the limbic system. So if your prefrontal cortex is here, your, your hippocampus, it folds right in, under here like this, right? It's about the size of a lemon or a golf ball. And your limbic system, your hippocampus, is your, is your center for pleasure, your center for emotional response. This is your fight or flight um, area of the brain, okay? So what happens is, you know, so you're hiking, right? And you look down and you see a snake, and so you jump. Your hippocampus just grabbed the steering wheel of your body and jerked it over to the, to the right, okay? But then you look down and you realize, it's a stick. It's not a snake. I'm a dummy. Your prefrontal cortex is like, you're an idiot, right? So that's what's happening. So taking it back to the end of the day, most sexual temptation happens either late at night or early in the morning. So, but why is that? For this reason, Okay. So as you're starting to go to sleep, your prefrontal cortex starts to shut down for the night. Your hippocampus, your, your limbic system begins to say, okay, now it's time to sleep. So your brain starts to give you some hormones. It's like, okay, cool, now I can start sleeping melatonin, a little bit of dopamine, okay, cool, now I'm going to go to sleep. Now here's what happens, though, is that that is the moment, I believe, when Satan knows we're the most vulnerable because we lose the cognitive ability to make decisions. We break rule number two. We do dumb stuff, right? And so the picture that he's painting here is he's saying that we are in that time of the day. Sun's going down. My, my center for reason is starting to shut down. And now all of a sudden, I am primed. I am primed for an emotional, pleasurable experience. That's what's happening here. Okay, so every part of verse 9 where he says, at twilight in the evening, in the dark of the night. Notice this is when all this is happening. So that's our, pro that's our setting here. We've got to understand what's happening to this kid. So number one, he's ignorant by choice, but now he's put himself in a situation where he is going to be hamstrung, and he's not even going to have the tools to be able to get out of this. Okay, so totally being an idiot. Look at verse 10. So going back to the woman that was briefly mentioned in verse 5, we see her now, okay, in verse 10. It says, a woman came to meet him dressed like a prostitute, having a hidden agenda, 
Okay, she's characterized by her clothing as a prostitute. So one of the things that we need to think about here is that in the ancient world, prostitutes, they don't dress like they do now. They, they typically would wear a veil over their face. And most prostitutes actually were, um, were religious people. So these are women who worked in pagan temples, who they made their living um, by prostitution. And for them, it was a religious thing, in addition to being a, um, a deplorable thing. Right? And so when you think about a prostitute running up to this kid, she wasn't dressed like what we would think a prostitute looks like. She's dressed in a veil. More than likely, she's wearing bright colors. She's wearing jewelry, so she makes noise as she, as she travels. And she's also very perfumed. You notice this woman. Okay? So she runs up to him. And so she, uh, she hides her face, though. Notice what it says, that she's dressed like a prostitute having a hidden agenda. This is, uh, the, the language here describes someone who is, um, who is set to manipulate. So she has, she has premeditated this scenario. This isn't something that has happened by happenstance. She's done this on purpose. She's been hunting. Okay, look at verse 11. She is loud and defiant. Her feet do not stay home. Okay, her inner disposition is described in these two ways. Okay, loud and defiant, and that she doesn't stay at home. So what does that mean? It means that she is uh, that she forces herself onto others. She is a um, she's a woman who refuses to to yield to cultural norms. Okay, so typically a prostitute is going to be um, petitioned or summoned. Right, they're going to be sought out, but this woman doesn't work that way. She hunts. So she's defiant of the way that things should work. But then this little phrase here, her feet do not stay in her home. Okay, so she, not only is she this defiant woman, but she also, this describes that she doesn't have any roots. She's a woman that does not have any allegiance to her family or to social status or to anything. She is purely driven by her own motives. So we have this, we have this, this kid, this boy, who is an idiot on purpose, who is in a compromised position, and now we have this woman who is openly pushy, and she wants something from him. Okay, she has done this on purpose. One of the one of the commentaries that I read about this woman. Now, bear in mind, think about her in contrast with the with Lady Wisdom. Lady Wisdom, who is standing in the street in the center of the square, saying, "All to me, who want to know, come and learn, and I will guard you and I will protect you." This woman comes in his face. One of the commentaries that I read said this. It says, she has a house, but not a home. She is a woman without roots in her family and community who can only live at fever temperature and whose wanderlust is the index of her homelessness and her alienation from authentic social experience. So contrast this. Okay, contrast this woman over here. She's loud. She's obnoxious. She is in your face. She is, she is catchy, like a good fishing lure. Contrast her with the description of a godly woman from 1 Peter. In the same way, wives, submit to your, yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over by a, uh, by a word, by the way their wives live, when they observe your pure, reverent lives. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in, God, in God's sight. Think about her, this loud, crazy woman, 
compared to what God's standard is. Okay, so now we're starting to see a contrast of what's at stake here and what's present. Okay, let's move on to verse 12. Now in the street, now in the square, she lurks at every corner. So she, she is hunting, right? She's a predator. We'll talk about this a little bit later when we get to verses 22 and 23. Verse 13, she grabs him and kisses him. She brazenly says, says to him, I've made fellowship offerings today. I fulfilled my vows, so, so I came out to meet you, to search for you, and I found you. So the narrative picks back up again after, he, after he's described who this woman is. And um, it says here in verse 13 that she runs up and she kisses him. So in this culture, at this point of time, even today actually, this is sexual assault. This is exactly what's being described here. Is that this is, in fact, in this, in, at this time in the ancient world, this is even more apropos than it is today. Or taboo, I guess, than it is today. So she runs up, she grabs this kid, and she just plants one on his, on his lips. Totally inappropriate, right? And she is, um, she's taking advantage of this kid. So her assault takes place in two escalating ways. Okay, first, okay, she wraps her wickedness in, in seductive language. And she describes what, that she's been waiting for him. Okay, check this out. So she kisses him in verse 13. And then verse 14, she says, I've made fellowship offerings today. I fulfilled my vows. So what she's trying to say is that she's saying, oh, well, I've already done my sacrifices. Now I need somebody to complete my offering. So in the ancient world, if, in, specifically in Syrian and in, and in Canaanite cultures, if you were going to worship a pagan god, you would, you would go to the temple or you would have a feast and you would eat and you would drink, and you would get drunk, and then everybody would have sex. That's how, that's how it would go. So what she's saying is, I've already made my offerings. I've already had my feast. Now it's time for the sex part. But what she's doing is she's clothing her pursuit of pleasure and her wickedness in religious language. She doesn't care about the offering. She doesn't care about anything else other than she wants to bed this kid. That's it. Okay? So she is, she is trying to make excuses and trying to make it more um, appetizing for him. Look at verse 15. So I came out to meet you, to search for you, and I found you. In other words, what she's saying is, you know what, I was watching, and I've been looking for a real man, and I see one right there, right here. You know, what kind of a, what kind of a young guy is going to be like, okay, cool, yeah, I'm a real man. That's what she's saying. She's like, I looked at all these other guys, and I, you're the one. You're, the, you're a real man. She's building up his ego, right? And she is flattering him by telling him that he's special. Notice that the sexual temptation comes with this promise of, oh, well, you know, this is totally socially normal. Everything is fine. Besides, you know, I'm pretty special. I mean, why wouldn't, why, why wouldn't somebody be attracted to me? Because I'm special, right? My spouse just doesn't really care. Like, they don't appreciate me for who I am. That's the temptation. That's the, that's the seed. And notice that she is going to attack his mind first, and then the body follows. Okay? So, verse 16. Okay, verse 16. Now we're going to get into some interesting things here. I've spread coverings on my bed, richly covered linen from Egypt. Okay, what she's talking about here is Egyptian fabric at this time in the, in the ancient world was like royalty would, would have it. Like this is stuff that is going to be that the common people aren't going to have access to. So not only is this Egyptian linen, but this is dyed Egyptian linen. 
Okay, going back to the idea of a red cord, colors matter. They still even matter today. There's even a whole realm of psychology dedicated to the idea of how colors change your brain chemistry, right? What color you wear is going to change your mood. So she says, I have this richly dyed Egyptian linen that's, that's covered my bed. And so what she's saying is that I've got a really nice place. And in fact, she's talking about a bed here. This is not the average. The average person would be sleeping on the floor on pillows. To actually sleep on a structure with four posts and pillows or cushions on top with linens on top of it, we're like in, we're like in serious rich territory here. So she's saying, I have a luxurious place for us to go. We're not going to do this in some back alley. We're going to go to a nice place. And so she is trying to, to um, attract him with this idea so in verse 17, she says, I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Okay, there's some interesting things here. Because all three of these perfumes, um, they draw a picture for what's being promised to the young man. Okay, so the first is myrrh. Now we, we, we usually think of myrrh when, in the story of Jesus, but myrrh was a pretty common spice that was used all over the place. One of the primary places that it was used, actually, was that it was crushed, pulverized, and put into little... Um, um, little containers, and women would wear them between their breasts. So it was associated with being in intimate contact with a woman, right? So if a man is, is making love to a woman, they're face-to-face, -face, right? That myrrh is right on his face. So she says, I have, she's presenting himself to him. I have made this aware. This is going to be part of it. So she's starting to, to describe the aloes that they're talking about, they were commonly used in combination with the myrrh. So this would be like a lotion that she would have put on. Okay, an oil that she would have covered her body with. So she's beginning to give him a description of what's waiting for him on those Egyptian linen sheets. Okay, then she talks about cinnamon. Cinnamon in the ancient world uh, would commonly come from the Indian coast. This is miles and miles away. So all three of these things come together to paint this picture that what's waiting for you here is a really nice bed and the promise of all of the sights and smells and tastes of lovemaking. That's what she's telling him. She's not just saying, hey, come back to my place. She's painting him a picture and wetting his appetite. So, okay, let's move on. Man, we're running out of time. Okay, verse 18. She says, come, let's drink deeply of lovemaking until morning. Let's feast on each other's love. Verse 18, what she's talking about is uh, this idea of drinking deeply, okay? So in, in um, Proverbs chapter 5, we saw this, this type of language talking about drinking water from your own cistern and not letting your water be spilled in the streets, right? So anytime in, uh, in particularly in Hebrew poetry, that you hear drink or drink well water in regard to um, a sexual relationship, specifically, this is a metaphor, okay? So to drink water is a metaphor for the act of sexual intercourse. And to drink well water is actually symbolic of a woman's sexual organs. So anytime that you start reading this, this is descriptive language, okay? When it talks about how um, a woman's lip, lips drip like a honeycomb in Proverbs chapter 5, he is not just talking about her mouth, okay? So we're talking about very explicit language here. She's saying... Come, let's drink of our deeply of lovemaking until the morning. She is making an absolutely overt sexual reference here. 
she says, I'm offering myself to you. But notice in the context of what she's saying here is that she's not interested in actually knowing him or committing herself to him in a godly covenant. She just wants to have sex with him. That's it. And so everything is carnally driven. Now, if you remember our study about the, the purposes between a man and a woman, how God brings us together in marriage, that that is a picture of Jesus' relationship with the church. And it's, it's defined by mutual sacrifice and service. Right? So God gave us sex on purpose in our marriages to bond us together, right? Psychologically and chemically, we become bonded together whenever we have sex with our spouses. So what she's saying is that I just want to do this thing and I'm going to rip away everything that's actually there, what it's there for, the context. I'm going to rip away everything that's godly and good. So that's what she's driving, driving for. Um, verse 19, okay, so now she's presented this. But obviously, it's like, well, what do we do if we get caught? Like, this is, this is you know, not good. This is taboo, right? But look, she offers some excuses here. She says, my husband isn't home. And he went on a long journey. He took a bag of silver with him, and he will come home at the time of the full moon. Her final appeal here is to take away any fear of wrongdoing, right? She's, like saying, she's saying, we're not going to get caught. Remember what happened in Eden. Eve is talking to Satan. And he says, why don't you try this fruit? Well, I can't take that because I'm going to die. What does Satan say? You're not going to die. In fact, you're going to be just like God. There's a dismissal of consequence. <coughs> what she's saying is, look, we can go do this thing. There's going to be no consequence. My husband's not even going to find out. He's going to be gone for a long time. So she also says that he took this bag of silver. She's reinforcing her point. She's like, no, he didn't just run next door to run an errand. Like, he's going to be gone for a long time. This business trip is going to be extensive. Okay, so look at verses, verse 21. So she seduces him with persistent pleading. She lures him with her flattering talk. Remember, she, she won his mind first. So she convinces him with her persistence and flattering talk. Notice that his mind is has been convinced, and his body follows. So, again, ignorance is dangerous. Look at verse, verses 22 and 23. He says, He follows her impulsively like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer abounding towards a trap, until an arrow pierces its liver. Like a bird darting into a snare, he doesn't know it will cost him his life. So there's three different uh, similes here. These are, th these are um, word pictures, right? So, First is the ox. This, this symbolizes uh, kingly strength. Then it's the deer or the stag. This symbolizes grace. And then it's the bird. This symbolizes the speed of death. Let's talk about that for a second, real quick here. So the ox is the most powerful of domesticated animals, right? So he's being led mindlessly to his death. He's forfeiting his strength and his honor to be passive. This young man has been made. He has been designed by God to lead a family. And Proverbs 5 teaches us that the relationship, the sexual relationship specifically between a man and his wife is to be guarded. It is to be done on purpose, to be intentionally stewarded. 
and that provides strength for a marriage and for a family. What he's saying here is that just like an ox giving up his strength, being led to being sacrificed, he gives up one of the most prominent things about what it means to be a man. And then he says like a deer running into a snare that the fall, after losing our strength, the fall leads to a graciousless existence. One of the the primary dangers of sexual sin is that you carry it for the rest of your life. Whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you have a sexually transmitted disease or not, sexual integrity in a marriage matters because if it's violated, then it destroys grace. And then the speed of death. You notice that this guy probably thought, oh, well, I'm just going to take a stroll in the city. But just like that, and after a short conversation, it's over. So what he's talking about here is that um, just like these three examples, he's giving up certain parts of what God has gifted to him. This phrase here in, uh, in verse 23, where it says, until, a, until an arrow pierces its liver like a bird darting into a snare. The, the comment there about a liver, back in the, uh, the ancient world, the liver was the seat of life because um, it was full of blood. And so they would find that the, that the liver was actually the source of life. And so anytime you see in Scripture something piercing the liver, that's, that's what's being talked about is going straight to, uh, to life. One of the, the comment, one of the commentaries that I read said this about this whole passage, said, Stupid animals see no connection between traps and death, and morally stupid people see no connection between their sin and death. And that's true. Okay, last couple of verses, and then we're going to wrap up. Verses 24 through 27. Okay, now the Father is going to go through, and he's going to wrap up this whole thing. And he's going, to, he's going to bookend this. Now, remember, he started out by saying, listen to my instruction. Put it on your fingertips. Write it around on a tablet around your heart. Now we're going to see that, that kind of language again. Verse 24. Now, sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Don't let your heart turn aside to her ways. Don't stray onto her paths, for she has brought many down to death. Her victims are countless. Her house is the road to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. A couple of things about these verses. In verse 25, he talks about the primary defense for its for seductive man or woman is godly instruction. Remember, ignorance is, is destructive, it's dangerous. Verse 25, he's talking about uh, the commitment to the path. We've talked about this before. There's language in previous Proverbs about being dedicated to the right path. Right? How it takes intentionality to walk on that path and to not be deceived by the tactics of seductive uh, people. <clears throat> so verses 26 and 27, I want to drill down a little bit on these. So he says, uh, to be slain, in the original language, uh, it, all, it, it can mean to be hollowed out or to be pierced. This is technically a military term for being stabbed in battle. Okay, so although in some contexts this can be mean, this can mean like somebody is killed physically. In this particular context, what he's talking about is is the image of a soldier being run through in battle, being stripped and buried, discarded for what they have on them. So this isn't enough to be killed. It's not enough to be destroyed. Is that everything about you is going to be taken? That's what he's describing here about being um, brought down to death. And um, another thing here is that he, uh, he says that her victims are countless. 
this is another military term describing an army of numbers, meaning there's no end, right? So here's some interesting descriptions here. The word for chambers, there in verse 27, it, uh, it can describe the inside of a house, right? So heater is the word. So this would be like the keep of a, of a castle, right? This is a, a fortified inner building, inner chamber of an overall larger structure. So there's a couple of different meanings for this word, and it's heater, H-E-D-E-R. So one, one example is literally saying that her, she is a, a, a gateway to the, to the inner chamber, to like the, the inner depths of hell, but another way that this is written in um, the rest of Jewish literature is that this actually is synonymous with a woman's sexual organs. The hidden thing, the, inner, the, the hidden being, the inner gate. What he's saying is that metaphorically and literally, this woman is the front door to hell. That's what he's saying. So everything that's connected to this idea of sexual pleasure that's been driven, he says in the grand scheme of things, when we look at the, this through the lens of Scripture, through God's Word, what this means is that what looks appetizing and pleasing and pleasurable actually is a rotten entrance to hell. One of the guys that I read wrote this about the seductive woman. Her bedroom is no ballroom, but a battlefield where corpses lie about and from where many are sent to the netherworld, even to the most inner chambers of the fortress of death that are destined for the most disrespected among the dead. So the warning here against the seductive woman, it's an example of a very real temptation. And this is true not just for guys that work in the business world. This is true for you ladies as well, is that this is a very real thing in our culture. It's a very real thing in human culture. That this is not just limited to a, a prostitute trying to catch your man off guard while he's on a business trip. Satan is hunting. And when it comes to the, the sexual integrity of our marriages, we've got to make sure that we have a prepared mind because the Lord can use a prepared mind. If you choose to be ignorant of God's word, you're choosing to walk in a dangerous place. So understand that your relationships with each other is going to, ha it has to be built on the foundation of God's word. It has to be built on an understanding and a discerning spirit because think about it. If that kid was walking through the city and he was prepared, he would be able to, to spot this woman a mile away. Not only that, he probably wouldn't actually be walking in this part of town at this time of night. So knowledge of God's word is the best way to protect your marriage. Okay, so don't think that this is something that you are insulated from, that, oh, well, you know, this isn't going to be a thing for me. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, I'm going to cheat on my spouse today. They don't do that. But what happens is slowly Satan begins to win battles in the mind. And it moves you closer and closer and closer. That colleague that seems to always be an encouragement, oh yeah, I would love, you know what? I'm just having a hard day. 
Can I talk to you about something? That woman's not your wife. Oh, you know what? I'm just really frustrated with my family situation right now. That man is not your husband. Satan wants to win your mind first. Remember that you live and you need to establish correct boundaries. That we all have a responsibility to protect the integrity of our marriages. And it starts with a prepared mind. Whose voice can come in? If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org. Come alive.